listening to Living Medicine, a special podcast series from the Irish Medical Organisation, which explores the lives and careers of senior figures in the medical profession. My name is Priscilla Lynch, and my guest today is Waterford GP, Dr. Patrick Kelly, who is also a medical officer with the Defence Forces. Patrick, you've had a very interesting career path in medicine. Can you tell us a bit about it? So I studied in University College Dublin. That's where I did my undergraduate. Went to St. Vincent's University Hospital. And then when I finished my intern year, I completed a master's in sports medicine in Trinity College just before I went on to the GP training scheme. I particularly liked sports medicine. I worked for the Waterford minor team for two summers and I got to go to the Summer Olympic Games in 2012 in London as a sports medicine doctor. And then in September 2014, that's when I joined the Defence Forces. Okay, so that's an unusual career choice for doctors in Ireland. It's quite a small, specialised area. So can you tell us why you decided to go into this I suppose I was always interested in something less ordinary, to steal the words of a recruiting campaign a few years ago for the Defence Forces. But I was also interested in kind of the humanitarian side of medicine. And I wanted to be able to use my medical skills outside of Ireland uh, in a relatively safe environment where the people who were with me would be protecting me. So because of the Defence Forces role internationally in peacekeeping, It was the perfect opportunity to leave Ireland um, under the Irish flag and be able to bring Irish medical care to other parts of the world less well off. Okay, so tell us a bit about your patient population. I suppose in Ireland, it's predominantly young Irish males between the ages of kind of 18 and 60. About 8% of the Defence Forces is female. As I said, they're predominantly very fit and healthy individuals. When we deploy overseas, I'm mainly looking after that same cohort But we're also looking after sometimes soldiers from other nations who might have an older age profile, may not be as fit, and we can look after civilians as well. So depending on the mandate of our mission, we may have a medical role to play, and that might be teaching first aid to locals, it might be providing primary care to locals, but it will always be providing emergency care where there's a risk of life, sight or limb threatening injury. So we'll always provide that basic level of care. So a lot of your work would involve musculoskeletal issues and also then trauma, perhaps at the more extreme end of things. Exactly. So because, as I mentioned, we have a young, fit, healthy population, they like to exercise, which is good. So as a result of that, a significant proportion of our clinical case mix will be musculoskeletal, whether that's kind of sprained ankles or broken bones in hands from playing hurling. It's, it's, a, it's a varied mix as well as the usual low back pain that you'll get in a normal population anyway. But a master's in sports medicine certainly helps you to kind of be prepared for that case mix. Yes, actually having a background in sports medicine and in general practice was really the perfect mixture for becoming a doctor with the Defence Forces. Can you tell us a bit about what your specific training in the Defence Forces involved? I suppose the training of the Defence Forces is a bit unique because we have a kind of a significant occupational health role as well. So as part of the occupational health role, I'm doing the licentiate in occupational medicine through the Defence Forces and through the College of General Practice. We are in unique environments around the world where we kind of have to be all things to all people. Our army isn't big enough that we have specialists in, you know, infectious disease or tropical disease. So therefore, we have to be able to deal with kind of pyrexia or fevers of unknown origin. So we do additional training in, let's say, tropical medicine 
or infectious disease. Unfortunately, in some parts of the world, they use chemical weapons. And we have troops deployed to countries presently where chemical weapons would have been used in the past. So we undergo training with the Royal Air Force in the identification and treatment of individuals who have been exposed to chemical, biological, radiation or nuclear weapons. So they are kind of unique aspects of Defence Force medical officers work that thankfully isn't required in civilian day to day practice. Would you have also taken Defence Force training, self-defence? Yeah, so I have a few, got a few, I was battered and bruised a few times. So we do uh, unarmed combat. So we learn unarmed combat, which is hand-to-hand stuff. Uh, we learn how to fire a rifle, a pistol. We have to go on the range every year, the same as our colleagues. We have to do our fitness test. Fitness test is a combination of sit-ups, push-ups, 3.2 kilometre run, and then a 10k loaded march. And I'm as competitive as any of the other soldiers. Uh, so I'm always trying to finish first. Doctors typically might wear scrubs in the hospital, a suit or more casual attire in general practice, but uh, you have a very different outfit, don't you? Yeah, well, what I'm wearing today is very fancy, given the day that's in it, I'm about to present at the IMO conference. But day to day, I don't think I could wear my fancy uniform. I wouldn't say I'm bet into it, but it's quite restrictive. For infection prevention and control reasons, I would be normally wearing trousers and a shirt, but only to kind of elbow level. It's all about ICPC nowadays. But sometimes I wear my green pyjamas, as I call them. But officially, they're called DPMs, which is the army technical term for camouflage, dispersal pattern material. So that's what we normally wear day to day. But it depends very much on what your role is. If I'm in the back of an an armoured personnel carrier in Syria, I'm not going to be wearing my kind of Sunday best. We wear what we, we wear based on what we're going to be doing for the day. Military medicine is a relatively new specialty. Can you tell us about how it was established in Ireland and the training scheme that is now in operation? Yeah, it's taken a long time to establish military medicine in Ireland. And as far as I know, it's kind of it was first spoken about maybe 10 years ago. So various directors of the medical corps have kind of been um, championing military medicine for the last decade. And certainly the current director, Dr. Kerr, and a former doctor in the Defence Forces, Paul Hickey, put in a lot of the work. The advantage to military medicine now is that the Defence Forces is able to deliver a specialist training scheme. And the benefit of that is we are now attracting graduates of Irish medical schools who want to join the Defence Forces once they complete their intern year. Military medicine is a dual specialty, so it comprises four years of general practice and then one year of kind of additional add-ons. Some of the trainees kind of refer to it, I've heard them refer to it as the Gucci a GP training scheme. So they learn their chemical weapon defence, they get to go to the ranges, uh, they learn a bit of occupational medicine and a bit more of emergency medicine. And it's mainly focused on pre-hospital trauma management. So they can do things like where you might have advanced trauma life support in civilian practice, we have battlefield advanced trauma life support. And it's basically slightly nuanced changes in what is the difference between looking after someone on a battlefield where you might be under attack versus someone who has been hit by a car in a civilian environment where it's relatively safe if you're not going to be hit by a car that's passing by. That sounds rather exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, when I was a GP trainee, I would have, you know, taken someone's hand off to be on the military medicine training scheme because I remember in my fourth year of GP training or even in my third year going, 
jeepers, I'm almost finished my scheme and there's so much I don't know. Maybe GP should be five years. So we're only into our current cohort and we have four individuals who are currently on the training scheme. So we're just coming up to the end of our second year and we're due to take in our next two trainees. But certainly the four who are doing it to date are really really enjoying it. And while they're predominantly with the HSE at the moment, Every now and again, they're getting invited back in to, you know, run around in the muck with the defence forces. And one of my colleagues was particularly helpful. He agreed to go to the Glen of Amal and cover an artillery shoot for three days, which really helped us out from an operational point of view. It was really good for him as well because it kind of gives him an insight into what's involved with the defence forces. And certainly the other members of the defence forces are excited to see kind of new and young doctors joining also. You've been deployed to both Syria and the Lebanon in recent years. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences in those areas? Yeah, so I was deployed to UNDOF, which is the United Nations Disengagement Observer Force. And that is being hosted by the Syrian Arab Republic. That's a UN peacekeeping mission, which Ireland has contributed significantly over the last uh, few decades. Our job there is to act as the quick reaction force. And that's just the medical term for kind of the emergency service. And what our job entails is along the disputed territory or area of separation between the state of Israel and the Syrian Arab Republic, there are unarmed military observers from uh, United Nations contributing countries from around the world. And those men and women are in outposts monitoring what is happening between the two countries. And they are the impartial observers for the international community. However, because of the Syrian civil war over the last number of years, there have been occasions where their lives were at risk, either from the fighting or from, let's say, uh, fires on the ground. So just natural fires that have started. And you'll also have your day to day things so people can become unwell appendicitis or they'll fall off their tower etc so the members of the Irish Defence Forces act as the quick reaction force so we will go out to those positions and provide medical care or if the positions were under attack which has happened in the past they will evacuate the position or reinforce the position so it is a very interesting dynamic in UNDOF in UNIFIL that's Lebanon that's the United Nations interim force in Lebanon and basically Irish peacekeepers have been in Lebanon I think it's our longest service and continuous mission and we effectively we have a large camp there there's about 450 personnel and their tasks are very different we do have a quick reaction force there but there's a lot of what's known as CIMIC or civil military cooperation so our personnel there are going to schools teaching kids teaching children English. They're reaching out to the community to provide health and education classes. They're teaching self-defense classes. And then they're just basically helping the Lebanese military to develop good procedure for military patrols, etc. Has your life ever been at risk during duty? <laughs> it has. Um, now, I hope my mum isn't listening. But I mean, there have been times where we were in situations where, let's say, artillery was landing in close proximity to our location where we would have felt the shockwaves in our camp. I can't say I've been on death's door by any means, but all members of the Defence Forces know that when they take an oath to serve the people of Ireland that potentially they can be put in situations where their lives are at risk and they're willing to do that if it's required. What have been the biggest challenges you've encountered so far during your time in the Defence Forces? I suppose one of the things is we're often operating in remote and austere environments where 
you know, the matter hospital isn't 10 minutes away in an emergency. So you often have to consider the constraints that are placed on you by virtue of your location and the lack of resources that are available. So, for example, in Sierra Leone, I remember going to a member of a non-governmental organization who had fallen down the stairs and had been knocked unconscious. There is effectively no real proper established healthcare system there, and we needed to evacuate her to our headquarters. She was able to fit in our vehicle. She'd regained consciousness. However, because of her particular organization's mandate, she wouldn't get into a military vehicle and almost insisted that I had to go in their vehicle except take off my uniform and wear civilian clothes. And being a pragmatist for the sake of the patient, I, you know, I agreed to her request and we brought her back to Freetown and we were able to look after her. But we have to bear in mind that everyone has an agenda. For them, it was impartiality, even though for me it was the patient. So I was willing to write, I'll take off my uniform and put on a hoodie just so I can accompany you to hospital. But that's just kind of one example of some of the things you have to think about when you're in a deployed environment compared to being at home where an ambulance will come in 10 minutes and you can just put them into an ambulance and drive them to the hospital. There are obviously many rewarding moments in your career as well. Can you tell us perhaps a few highlights? Uh, when we were in Syria, we were able to treat a um, lady who was only 23 or 24 who had been bitten by a snake. That was in 2016. We had the medication or the antivenom required. It was in the height of the Syrian civil war. By virtue of where she was located, it wasn't possible for her to get to a civilian hospital. So by being able to provide that medical treatment, we potentially saved her life or got her enough time for her to get to a a hospital nearby. But uh, one particularly valuable moment I can think of was in Sierra Leone. I was asked to see a young boy who was 10. He had been born with cerebral palsy, so he was incontinent of urine and feces. And I remember his dad had come to me very kind of distraught because there was a lot of stigma associated and the child was being bullied, etc. And while I wasn't able to obviously cure the cerebral palsy, I was able to kind of fashion a makeshift urine bag using thousands of condoms. We had thousands of condoms that we brought with us to Sierra Leone. That's generally part of a standardized pack of medical equipment that we would deploy with as a protective measure for soldiers in case they're going on their holidays. We would issue these as a protective measure. But by using just a non-rebreather oxygen mask, thousands of condoms and um, a bottle, I was able to show the dad how he could basically make a urine bag for his son. And he came back to me four weeks later, just joy on his face that now he was no longer wetting himself constantly and the smell of urine was gone and the effect even that just small thing made to his son's life was huge and while he still required a nappy for the faecal incontinence it just made a, a massive difference in my opinion you didn't have to be a doctor to be able to kind of make that change but being able to show him how to do that and how to make it sustainable was kind of very rewarding for me and my medical sergeant. Does it make you think differently about medicine in Ireland when you go abroad and practice in these areas? Completely. I mean, like as doctors here in Ireland, at times we're frustrated by the healthcare system. As members of the public or as patients, we're frustrated by the health system. And it's only when you go to a country like Sierra Leone where you see they have no health system that you're truly grateful for, you know, 
the, the long wait that you could be potentially spending on a trolley or the two days that you might have to wait to see your GP because in Sierra Leone there is no GP there isn't even a trolley you may be lying on the ground of a, a clinic there's no way for you there's no ambulance service even so there's no way to be brought to hospital unless your family physically carry you or your neighbor has access to a car so when you do see kind of what people have to survive with in other parts of the world you are kind of thankful for what we do have i know today that if i get hit by a car outside an ambulance will arrive and it will bring me to a hospital and there will be doctors there my family don't have to show up with money and pay the doctor before he sees me or they don't have to go off to the pharmacy and buy the medicine and bring it back for the nurse to give it to me so it does make you thankful for our own health system one of the most frightening exotic diseases known to man is ebola and mm. there have been outbreaks in recent years and there's currently one in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You've actually come across Ebola in your work, haven't you? I have. So my first mission in 2015 was to the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. So I was part of a joint mission between the United Kingdom and Canada where we set up an Ebola treatment centre outside of the capital, Freetown, where we looked after basically healthcare professionals from around the world and from Sierra Leone who had volunteered to go and look after people with Ebola in Sierra Leone. Thankfully, towards my deployment, it was towards the end of the outbreak. So I've never actually laid hands on someone with Ebola. And I'm thankful for that, not from a personal risk point of view, but that things had gotten under control by the time I had arrived. My job anyway wasn't primarily to look after patients with Ebola. It was to look after the 150 other people who were actually in the red zone looking after the patients with Ebola. So my job was to be the GP to those 150 people, basically. Ebola is an incredibly infectious disease and obviously containing it is a real issue. Can you tell us about your experiences of that? Yeah, well, since Sierra Leone for two and a half months, I worked at the force headquarters and there I was the operations officer. So our job there was basically to take the figures or data coming in from the various regions and to collate how many cases there were in those particular regions and have a modelling to predict how many more cases were likely to result. Everyone thinks that, you know, Ebola is contained by having doctors there treating people. But actually, there's a lot of education involved, epidemiologists going out on the ground. As a military working with the Sierra Leonean authorities, we had to be able to track people who escaped from treatment facilities. So if you think about it, the perception of these people was their family and friends were going into these treatment facilities and were never coming out alive. There were some rumours in the community that, you know, the government was infecting them or the white man was infecting them. So we had to overcome all these things. So our job was to facilitate the Sierra Leonean authorities to help find the people who had been infected or who needed to be quarantined. And whilst Sierra Leone is quite a, a poor country, everyone has a mobile phone. So they were both a blessing and a curse because my sergeant recalls a story of a Sierra Leonean soldier standing outside a village, standing outside a home where he was making sure no one went in or out because two days previously someone in the home had died from Ebola. And they're all on their mobile phones. Credit is very cheap. And after about five or six hours, uh, my sergeant said he saw this soldier going into the house that was in quarantine and said, here, can you charge my phone? And then 
two hours later came back to pick up the phone from the individual. Now, that's a kind of a bad case of what the phone was doing. But we were able to use mobile phones to contact individuals, to send messages to communities to say, look, you need to be careful. There's a case here. Or in some situations, we were able to track mobile phones and able to identify individuals who might have been very unwell and weren't able to seek help. And obviously the washing of bodies and then washing themselves is another issue, isn't it, in regards to the spread of Ebola? Yeah, so when a a family member would die from Ebola, the family would wash the body at death. That's the most dangerous time because the viral count is at its highest. On average, for every death that was looked after by the family, there will be six new cases. So we had to get the message to the community that if your loved one dies or is sick from Ebola, we will come and take away the body and we will wash the body and we will bury the body in a safe and culturally appropriate way. And by doing that, that was probably one of the main ways in which we reduced the spread of Ebola. So obviously you come across conditions that a doctor in Ireland will never come across if they don't work in these areas. So Mm. really, what strikes you as the most interesting thing you've come across? As I said, like in Sierra Leone, access to healthcare resources is limited. So there is no ambulance service. So you would regularly see people who were dead. Sadly, you would see people who were dead on the side of the road who had been hit by a car and no one could bring them to hospital or even recover their bodies. Thankfully, that doesn't happen in Ireland. But like the resort, the lack of resources in war torn countries and in Sierra Leone is huge. No matter how bad we think we have it here, we don't really have it on that level of badness, I suppose, for want of a better term. Vaccine hesitancy is an issue that the Western world is grappling with at the moment, but you've worked in areas where vaccination is obviously incredibly important to the local populations. Is that something that you've come across? Yeah, and I've even come across that with our own personnel or from uh, soldiers from other UN nations. So, for example, in the Golan Heights, which is uh, in the Syrian Arab Republic, uh, that's the contested territory between uh, Israel and Syria. Because of the outbreak of the civil war, there is an increase in rabies in the Golan Heights. And I would have come across soldiers from other nations who had been bitten by dogs and we didn't have access to rabies vaccination. So that creates certain logistical and ethical problems because you now need to decide whether you need to send this person home to their home nation in order to get treatment or do you wait to see if you can catch the dog and put it into isolation for 10 days and see if it develops symptoms of rabies. But certainly where I have been around the world, people don't have access to polio vaccines, there's measles, etc. So things that we take for granted in Ireland, such as the lack of measles, sadly are making a resurgence here because people have chosen not to use vaccines, uh, either themselves personally or in their children. What would you say to any young doctor thinking of a career in the Defence Forces? To me, it's very rewarding. It's a very good quality of life. There are plenty of opportunities and challenges, so you'll get to see the world. Certainly, I would never have probably been to Sierra Leone in the middle of an Ebola crisis had I not been in the Defence Forces. Similarly, it's unlikely that I would have been in the Syrian Arab Republic in a time of civil war had I not been in the Defence Forces. The real advantage is that you're supported in an academic and an educational way. So I'm certainly supported educationally to pursue other qualifications that I don't have. I'm given the time to do it and I'm given a chance to bring Irish healthcare 
to other parts of the world where healthcare is kind of in short supply. There's more of a focus now on mental health, good mental health particularly, in those who serve in the Defence Forces. Can you tell us a bit about that? I suppose mental health is important for everyone, not just those in the Defence Forces, but I suppose it's more topical in recent years, particularly after the Iraq and Afghanistan war, the consequences of the cases of PTSD that have emerged in the United Kingdom and in uh, the United States. But certainly within the Defence Forces, we have a very robust structure in place to identify individuals who have mental health problems and to try and support them. So we screen individuals before they join the Defence Forces. If they go overseas and are returning from a mission, we screen them again. We have clinical psychologists. We have access to an external psychiatrist. We have a personnel support service. And we have social workers all within the Defence Forces who can assist individuals or families with those kind of issues that put mental strain on them. One of my big things is that, you know, as an occupational doctor, people will often say, oh, I'm stressed, I need time off work. But actually, there's lots of evidence to support being in work as positive to your mental health and giving you a sense of identity and value. And sometimes it's a distraction to the problems that go on outside. It is rewarding when you can convince someone to go back to work and they say, actually, no, coming back to work was something that was beneficial to me. I think as a profession, we need to start looking at the value of work as a positive kind of treatment almost in mental health. Are there any areas you'd particularly like to be deployed to in the future? Oh, God. <laughs> That's a good question and I haven't thought We do have a mission in the we do have a mission with the Navy at the moment called Operation Sophia. So that does sound appealing to me because as a medical officer I'm generally deployed in only medical roles. Uh, whereas my other colleagues are often sent to do jobs in headquarters or on the ground as a soldier or in command of soldiers. However, because medical officers are in short supply, we're very strictly kind of limited to doing medical things. And I would have come across actually medical officers from other countries who were, let's say, unarmed observers on peacekeeping missions. And I was fascinated by that. But I would like to probably go on Operation Sophia and just to have an experience of what the naval service do in the Mediterranean. So if I could go and do that, I'd jump at that opportunity. Is the perception of military medicine very different from the reality? I mean, when you look at the movies and how medical doctors are portrayed, it can be very far removed from what you actually do day to day. Yeah, and I think I'm thankful for that because while most people might think that military doctors are dealing with people who are blown up, thankfully that's not really what we're we're dealing with. Primarily when I'm overseas, my job is dealing with the same things that GPs up and down the country are dealing with. So runny noses, sore throats, musculoskeletal injuries, people with diarrhea and vomiting. So when I'm overseas, one of my main roles is force health protection. And that's actually stopping people from becoming unwell in the first place. So that is as mundane as harassing my colleagues to make sure that there's soap and water and paper towels outside the cookhouse so people wash their hands before they go in, that they're not wearing shorts and t-shirt in an area where there's malaria, that if it's going to be a very hot day, that they're not uh, running around with body armor on doing an exercise, which could be done at six o'clock in the morning when it's a lot cooler. So it's a kind of a lot of prevention is better than cure. On the rare occasion, there are road traffic accidents as a member of the Defence Forces, you're most likely to be killed in a road traffic accident based on the numbers of personnel who we've had die in the past. 
So it's a kind of annoying people or reminding people to wear their seatbelts and to, you know, control their speed. So it's not the kind of blood and gore that you see in the movies. Thankfully, it's a lot more mundane and boring. But there are times when we do have to, you know, um, kind of roll our gloves up and deal with trauma. And in those cases, have there been any recent developments in medical technologies or medicine that really help you? Well, I suppose with Iraq and Afghanistan, there have been huge developments in the military medicine space, which are now translating into the civilian space. So particularly in the area of kind of massive blood transfusion protocols. So because of Iraq and Afghanistan, we now kind of have a much better idea of what the optimum amount of uh, red cells to plasma to clotting factors to give. Before, they were very reluctant to use tourniquets. So when someone had a traumatic partial amputation of a limb, it was almost you know, forbidden to use a tourniquet. We now know that blood loss will cause cardiac arrest. And you might be familiar with, you know, the ABCs of opening the airway, checking the breathing, uh, checking the pulse. In the military setting, it's actually C first. So look for signs of catastrophic bleeding. If they do have them, stop the bleeding, keep the blood inside and then do your ABCs. So it depends very much on the environment in which you're in. But the translation now from military medicine to the civilian space has benefited civil society, thankfully. And what's the next step in your career? Where do you see yourself in the next five, ten years? So this is the first year now where I'm not going to be overseas. Uh, So in the last four years, I've been overseas. What the future holds, I don't know. I kind of like quality improvement projects and I like the space of clinical governance. So I would like to see myself kind of moving into that space. So clinical governance, ensuring that we are able to deliver the best and highest standards of medical care to the men and women of the Defence Forces. That's kind of where I want my career trajectory to take me. That brings us to the end of this episode of Living Medicine. My name is Priscilla Lynch. and I want to thank my guest in this episode, Dr. Patrick Kelly, for spending time with us and to each of you for listening to Living Medicine. Living Medicine will be back soon on your favourite podcast platform.